Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. We're at the third class of our 14-class structured study of the meaning of wise restraint. Um, we first started with a, a look at what constitutes every human being, what we're made of, uh, a six-property person. Last week, we looked at the Sam, Samadanga Sutta, if I remember the name correctly, uh, the importance of developing concentration um, as the foundation for everything else that we do. And now we're looking at the Abhaya Sutta that I think I taught this about six weeks ago mm-hmm. in our Eightfold Path Structured Study. Um, and it, it brings up a point. You, everything the Buddha taught for his 45 years of teaching was taught in the context of dependent origination and four noble truths. And so every sutta that he ever taught is in that context. So you, I, you could pick any sutta, create a theme around it, and and find likely suttas that would fit. These suttas are particularly um, pertinent to the idea or the theme of wise restraint. Uh, and now we're looking at uh, the importance of right speech, the first of the virtuous factors in the Eightfold Path. And so many people begin and I would say uh, reach the ultimate destination by being mindful of right speech. So right speech uh, is not just what we're saying to others and that it should always be pleasant, etc. Uh, we should be mindful as we deepen our concentration of the words that are coming out of our mouth and the story we're telling other people, but just as significant, and, and I would say even more important, is to be mindful of the ongoing story we're telling ourselves because it is ultimately there that we resolve um, our ignorance of four noble truths. So if you want to know the quality of your mind, take a moment and just be mindful of what's coming out of your mouth because what comes out of our mouth is determined by what we're holding in mind. And that is true about any situation, whether we're getting into, you know, today a a political argument, we're arguing something that we're holding in mind, or it's just a a conversation that we're having, a pleasant conversation, Um, but framed by, or, or you could even say colored by, what I'm holding in mind. So if what I'm holding in mind is pure as defined by the Eightfold Path, then my words to others will always be pleasant, but more importantly, the words to myself will always be pleasant. I'll finally learn how to be gentle with myself. So I'm just going to read a little bit of the introduction, excuse me, just so we all know what, I, what we're talking about, what Siddhartha is talking about is right speech. So right speech is abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from abusive speech, abstaining from gossip, that's a tough one, and this last one is the toughest of all, but the one that resolves the Dhamma is being mindful of and abstaining from idle chatter. Most of our lives are wasted by just keeping the the chatter going, whether it's with someone else or when we are alone with the TV on, looking at our phone and radio blasting in the back and we can't stop thinking that it's always going, that's idle chatter. And people that were very smart made billions on uh, pushing the button on idle chatter and giving us a resolution. 
I'm talking about Google search, Facebook, and Twitter, and Instagram, etc., etc. So right speech is always compassionate speech, as, as it is speech informed by the wisdom of four noble truths developed through the Eightfold Path. Noble silence, uh, something that is um, very... Uh, it's a popular form of Buddhist practice, meaning people think that just because you're, you're not talking, you're practicing noble silence. That's not noble silence. There's nothing noble about a forced restriction on your speech, such as many modern uh, retreats. Our retreats are not um, entirely silent retreats. What we do practice is the Eightfold Path, meaning that we're mindful of our right speech. And so our retreats are framed initially by, and the foundation is really this right speech. Because if you don't have the opportunity to interact with each other, especially on a retreat, how are you going to learn the Dhamma, especially right speech? You have to be mindful of what's coming out of your mouth. And so, excuse me, even if you find yourself about to tell a lie, or you've already done that, or you're about to have an argument with somebody, or you've already argued, raised your voice in anger, we take a breath and we're mindful of that. We recognize that that's not right speech. And, it's, and that's as far as it has to go. We avoid the need for analyzing every thought, word, and deed, every action that we take, and we simply understand our behavior, beginning with speech, within the framework of the Eightfold Path. Does it fit or doesn't it? Noble silence follows wise restraint and is then active engagement with the Dhamma at the point of contact. So what is... What informs noble silence? It's the wise restraint or practicing restraint with our speech. And so again, using our, um, uh, our retreat and even our local sangha here, or our classes, as an example, we take our meals in silence because that's a very effective way of practicing right speech because it, most people, um, when they're eating with other people, can't help but talk, usually about their food, but it could be anything. One of the things that used to drive me crazy in restaurants, not so much anymore, is when you'd get into a restaurant and you, it's a busy restaurant and one table is trying to talk over the next table, the next table, the next table, and you got this huge crescendo of idle chatter. Like I said, it doesn't drive me as crazy as it used to, but maybe it still does. So, right speech and true compassion, the Abhaya Sutta from the Majima Nikaya 58. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying at the Squirrel Sanctuary in the bamboo forest near Rajagaha. This was all part of the, the where the Buddha spent most of it. The Buddha never left more than a 400, never left an area larger than 400 square miles. So he, he was localized, but just think about that. His impact even during the Buddha's time spread, started spreading all over the world, and now it's everywhere. But it was all done on foot. It was all done on foot. A local prince, Prince Abaya, went to the Jain, Naganta Nataputa. The, the, the Jains were a, um, a common religion during the Buddhist time, still practiced today. Some people think that Jainism is the same as Buddhism. There are significant differences uh, to the Jain religion then and now. The prince approached Naganta Nataputa and sat to one side. Naganta Nataputa, somebody, somebody asked her, so I got to say it. There's a lot of reference to approaching the Buddha or someone else and sitting to one side. And somebody wanted to know what the significance of it, and they related it to somehow to astrology. I, I can't remember what they said. It's, sim it's simply a sign of respect. Yeah. 
I don't sit in front of you, you know, and right in your face. I'm not in your face. I, I respect you. I sit to, I bow gently and I sit to one side. I give you space. We don't do that today, do we? We could solve a lot of arguments by just simply stepping to one side or moving to one side. They got to not the put to set the Prince of Baya. If you would refute the teachings of the mighty and powerful Gotama, the contemplative of the Buddha, an admirable, admirable, admirable <laughs> reputation of you will spread far. <coughs> the prince said, Venerable sir, how will I refute the teachings of the mighty and powerful Gotama? Come now, prince, Gotama the contemplative is at the squirrel sanctuary in the bamboo forest near Rajagaha. When you see him, ask this, would you say words that are not endearing or, dis- or are disagreeable to others? If he answers that he would say words that are not endearing or are disagreeable to others, then you say to him, then how is this any different between you and any ordinary run-of-the-mill people? She's just engaging in argument. However, Prince, if Gautama the Contemplative answers that he would not say words that are not endearing or disagreeable to others, then you say to him, then why did you say that Devadaha is headed for deprivation, a living hell, beyond redemption? Devadaha was upset at these words. So quickly, Devadaha was a cousin of the Buddha. He tried to kill the Buddha twice. Uh, the last time that he failed, the Buddha gave him, and there's a sutta that one of these days I'll teach it again, where he tells Devadaha, you're headed for ruin because of your actions and what you're holding in mind. Not because he, he tried to hurt the Buddha or another human being because of the quality of mind that caused him to do that. And I won't get into the backstory of that. Um, this also points to something that has been part of human history from the beginning to now, the prison of two ideas. Most people decide that life is either this way or that way, and they get stuck in that prison of two ideas. So uh, uh, Prince Abaya is, uh, is misunderstanding this now because he's saying it either has to be that the Buddha's words are disagreeable or they're agreeable 100% of the time. And of course, that's not life. The Buddha's Dhamma is ap- applicable in any situation, no matter what's occurring. And sometimes, and you'll hear as we go further in the sutta, sometimes those words might be seen as disagreeable. But they're the most loving words that a a person can say at that moment because they are in line with the Dhamma. When you ask Gautama the contemplative this, two-pronged question, the prison of two ideas, my words, he won't be able to swallow it or spit it out. It will be as if he swallowed a, a two-horned chestnut that became struck, stuck in his throat. Prince Abaya responds, As you say, Lord, he left Nagantanataputta with respect and went to the Buddha. On arrival, he bowed and sat to one side. As the prince was sitting sitting with the Buddha, he thought, This is not the time or place to confront Gautama the contemplative. I will invite him to my house and refute his words there. He's trying to put a... Uh, give himself an advantage by inviting the Buddha out of his comfortable place and putting him his, in, uh, in his. Great teacher, would you join me there in Naganta's place, uh, uh, setting, that's what I meant. Great teacher, would you join me with three of your Sangha members for tomorrow's meal? The Buddha accepted the offer by his silence. The prince left with a show of respect. The next day, the Buddha adjusted his inner robe and took his alms, alms bowl and outer robe and left for Prince Abaya's home. Upon arrival, he sat and prepared for, he, he, he prepared a seat for him. Prince Abaya served the Buddha and his friends a lavish meal. The Buddha finished his meal and moved his hand from his, over his bowl, covering his bowl, I've had enough. 
The prince sat on the lower seat to one side of the Buddha and addressed the Buddha. And again, that was a sign of respect that the prince being royalty still sat at a lower seat than the Buddha. And this wasn't, uh, these weren't manufactured seats. They were probably sitting on a hillside. And so Prince Abai just sat at the lower seat just so he's not presenting the appearance that he's above the Buddha in some way. He asked the Buddha, would you say words that are not endearing or are disagreeable? The Buddha responds, there is no categorical yes or no answer. In other words, everything is a situation. Well, Gautama, you have just refuted the Naganthas. Just yesterday, Naganta Nataputta told me to find you and ask if you would use words that are not endearing or are disagreeable. He said you would choke on the answer as if you had swallowed a two-horned chestnut. I love that metaphor. At that time, a baby was lying on the prince's lap. The Buddha asked Prince Abaya, if this baby was neglected and swallow a piece of gravel, what would you do? He said, I would remove it. If I could not remove it easily, I would hold his head on one hand and reach into the baby's throat to remove the stone, no matter how much it may hurt. This, sa- this may hurt the baby, but it would save his life. It was an appropriate action, even though it was hurtful initially, wasn't it? I would do this out of sympathy for the baby. The Buddha says, in the same way, out of sympathy for others, not for his own self-referential views, out of sympathy for others. How, how do we have sympathy? How can we establish sympathy for others? We first have to understand others. How do we understand others? We understand ourselves. The most sympathetic thing I can do for you is to have sympathy for myself and awaken. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be false, unendearing, disagreeable, or not helpful in developing the Dhamma, I do not say them if they're not helpful. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be true, but likewise unendearing or disagreeable, or not helpful in developing the Dhamma, I do not say them. Even if it's true, even if it's a noble truth, if it's going to be disagreeable, in other words, if it's going to fall on deaf ears, why waste the energy? And there's another aspect of that. Why say something that might be so disagreeable to someone else that they may never listen to you again? You simply don't say it. That's noble silence in that moment. It's holding your tongue. It's knowing when it's appropriate to speak and when it's not. How do we know that? Well, sometimes we can't know it, but we still engage in right speech in a gentle and, and, and impersonal way. And in that way, we're likely not going to be cause, cause a harm to another person. But how do we do this continually? We have to have deep concentration and we have to have right view established. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be true, unendearing, disagreeable, but helpful in developing the Dhamma, with a sense of the proper timing, I do say these things. So again, it's such a misunderstanding of the Buddha's Dhamma, excuse me, that you can never ever utter a word that might cause a reaction to anybody. That's not right speech. And it's, it's not right mindfulness either. And again, remember, in, in spreading the word and teaching the Dhamma is what we're talking about. But we're always, as we develop the Dhamma, we should be mindful that we're always an example of the Dhamma, aren't we? So we should always be mindful of right speech. So many of us want to know, how do we teach this to others? Or how do we get other people interested? And initially, a lot of our thinking would 
fall into an aspect of wrong speech, meaning thinking that we should say things related to the Dhamma to save someone. We are not saviors. The Buddha never established himself as a savior and he never established his Dhamma as a salvific religion. It is out of sympathy for others that we understand we're not saviors and nobody else can be saved. Saved by themselves, except. <laughs> saved by themselves. Saved by themselves, except. That's a double, what's that called? Double something. Um, and so it, as we develop the Dhamma, it is with grace and calm that we move through the world. And it is through grace and calm that we attract others to the Dhamma. Whether, rather than push people away from the Dhamma by saying they should be this way and should be that way. Because we understand that nobody should be any way except the way they are, no matter how disagreeable they may be to us or to society at large. It's none of our business, to put it in, in direct terms. What is my business is to develop the Dhamma, to awaken, to gain full human maturity, and then be an example through right speech, right action, and right livelihood for my remaining days. And in that way, I am no longer bringing conflict in the world. And so you've heard me say this so many times. If we truly want to end conflict in the world, and most every human being does, I would say everybody that's here today would like to end conflict in the world. And we know now that in order to do that, we have to end conflict within ourselves first. And doesn't that make sense? And again, it doesn't mean that we should not engage in peaceful and conflict-free actions until we are fully conflict-free ourselves. In fact, that's where right speech and the other aspects of the Eightfold Path will bring mindfulness. Be mindful of what's coming out of our mouth because that will always tell us the quality of our minds. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be true, unendearing, disagreeable, but helpful in developing the Dhamma with a sense of the proper time, I do say them. The proper time. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be false, not helpful in developing the Dhamma, but are endearing and agreeable, I do not say them. So we don't engage in this very hurtful act of just trying to make people feel good. Where does that come from? Why do I need to make you feel good in the moment because I think I'm your savior? No matter how true a word is, it is out of sympathy for others. I'm sorry, not, no matter how useful a word or a phrase might be in this moment, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be false, that are not helpful in developing the Dhamma, I do not say them. And that's noble silence. Noble silence is not forced silence on a retreat. Noble silence is always informed by right speech. And it's an ongoing part of our Dhamma practice. Again, not once a year when we go away for a few days and we don't talk to anybody. Again, just think about that as a mature human being. What is there to gain in that? And how can you practice the Dhamma when you're not opening your mouth, when you don't have the opportunity to practice right speech? In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be true, endearing, and agreeable, but are not helpful in developing the Dhamma, I do not say them. Words that are agreeable, but are not helpful, what would that be? Well, someone says, Instead of meditation, I jump on a pogo stick for 14 minutes. To me, for me to say, yeah, that's great. That's agreeable. That makes the person feel good. 
I should just go along with it, shouldn't I? No. Because in the context of the Dhamma and in this room, again, within the framework of the Dhamma, someone wants to know the Dhamma, we simply say, that's not the meditation method we use. We use this. And then if that person is interested in getting off their pogo stick and learning this, then we can teach it. But the opportunity is lost if we're all we're going to say is, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Because it's, it's not. But again, in the context of the Dhamma, if we see someone jumping on a pogo stick for 14 minutes, we don't say that's not meditation. Or if someone's practicing another meditation practice and they say that's what they do, and they're not interested in what we do, we also keep our mouth shut. But if they happen to say, is that what you do for your meditation practice? We have the courage to say, no, I do something different. And the refined mindfulness. That is the point of the Dhamma. In the same way, that's not the only point, we, re, we are always speaking the truth when it is not rooted in idle chatter, it won't fall on deaf ears. But we learn to keep our mouth shut when it is idle chatter or what we're about to say will not be taken by the other person. In the same way, out of sympathy for others, words that I know to be true, endearing and agreeable and are helpful. That's the qualification to developing the Dhamma and with a sense of the proper time, I do say them. Lord, when others have questions for you and you approach and approach you, do you know how you will answer or do you form... I'm sorry, let me read this again. Lord, when, you, when others have questions for you and approach you, do you know how you will answer or do you formulate a response in the moment? Alamanut. I will counter question you, question you, Prince. Answer as you see fit. Are you skilled in the parts of a chariot? Yes, I am skilled in the parts of a chariot, answered the Prince. Well, Prince, when people ask you about the parts of a chariot, do you know how you will answer, answer or formulate a response in the moment? This is such an important point, but it, it's very subtle and it could be lost. Great teacher, I am known as an expert on the parts of a chariot. As such, I formulate a response in the moment. Because of, his, because of what he's learned in the past and what he's developed within himself, the prince, he knows about a chariot. He can now talk about that from from knowing, from understanding, from his own direct experience. He's not going to make up a story about a chariot. And hopefully if he didn't know, he would simply say, I don't know. Prince Abaya, in the same manner, when others question me, I formulate a response in the moment, meaning situational. And it's remarkable as you really read the suttas, a simple question that, that, the, that a human being might take is not even related the Buddha will give a beautiful and meaningful sutta, always bringing it back into the context of the Dhamma, because he understands. And so anything in life can be framed within the Dhamma, either it's, a, it's part of Dhamma practice or it's counter or contradicting Dhamma practice, everything. And that is how we carry ourselves in the world, and that's how we know when to open our mouths and when to practice normal silence. I formulate it, the Buddha continues, I formulate a response in the moment because I so thoroughly understand the Dhamma. So again, the question comes up often, especially after a few classes when people are starting to understand uh, what is implied by the Dhamma. We start wondering, okay, how do I... I'm feeling these great benefits. I feel better. I'm more calm. I understand how to talk with people better. How do I teach this to other people? 
First by example. How do you example anything? You first have to learn it. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a fully awakened human being before you can start exampling the Dhamma, but make your Dhamma practice part of that, part of being an example of what you are. Not because I said so, and not because you hope to get to Buddhist heaven when you die, because it's for your own benefit. To be the best and most thorough example of the Buddha, of the Dhamma as you can in this moment, how do you know that? By being mindful of your speech. When this was said, Prince Abaya, Prince Abaya applied, Magnificent, Lord, magnificent. It is as if you have set upright what was overturned, revealed what was hidden. Remember, the prison of two ideas. Just like today, everybody is stuck in those two ideas. It's either this or that. But the Buddha was able to set upright what was overturned, what was stuck in those two ideas, revealed what was hidden. You have shown a clear path to one lost and carried a lamp in the darkest for those with eyes to see. That's what we are doing first to ourselves and then for others. Through many lines of reasoning, you have made the Dhamma clear. Then the prince said, I take refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha's sitting right in front of him. He understands it. He's taking refuge in the notion that a human being did what he's hoping to do. He's taking refuge in the Dhamma. He just heard a bit of it, and he knows that it's for him. And he takes refuge in a Sangha, a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. Then he says, remember me as a follower from this day forward. He's making a commitment. He's literally saying to the Buddha, I will engage in right effort from this point on. Remember me as a follower. Not, not a blind follower, not someone who's doing it on faith, but a follower of the Buddha, his Dhamma, within a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. That's how we develop right speech and the other factors of the Eightfold Path. Thank you for listening to this wonderful sutta. Uh, let me go to Mary first. Mary, how are you this morning? I am good. Um, I'm looking forward to the retreat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I think I'll take noble silence today. Thank you for the teaching, John. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. I'm happy to be here. Always good to be reminded of right speech and how important it is for our own well-being not not focusing on the well-being of others but focusing on our own well-being right speech is is comforting to carry in mind all the time and this hearing this again reminded me of that and i thank you and i too am looking forward to the retreat mary yeah thank you becky yeah thank you john it's like it we should look at it or we can look at it this way that if we if we like the idea of giving money to charities or be able or able to give something of value to someone a monetary value we first have to make the money to do that, don't we? We have, to, we have to put the money in the bank before we can give it. And the Dhamma is the same way. Before we want to share the Dhamma with people, before we want to give others what we found so helpful to ourselves, we first have to have it, don't we? And it's just that way. So. Good morning, Debbie. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. 
Welcome to our sangha. Thank you for the lesson. It, it's my pleasure. Do you have any questions or comments on it? I'm sure I will. It's a important and I think a big lesson. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything comes up during this class, just just holler out and please feel free to contact me anytime through the website. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us today, Deb. Debbie, I, I, I got to call you Debbie because I'll, I'll get you mixed up with Deb. How are you, Deb? Devlin. Hey, John. Good morning. Good morning. How Good are morning, you? Good morning, everyone. Um, I'll just continue listening for today. Thanks, Thank you for Deb. this talk. I'm glad you joined us. Good morning, Dr. Kevin. Good morning, John. Um, thank you for the lesson. Thank you for teaching us again, reminding us about right speech. And I will take noble silence as well for wow. change. Everybody's getting noble silence today. Yeah, we were, you know, Buddha told us to do so. so. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Good morning, Matteo. Hi, hi, everybody. Uh, so I have a question, more, more like a curiosity rather than uh, the teacher itself. You know, I, I have a soft spot for Devadatta. <laughs> in Sabha. So, uh, do you think in that case, because as far as I know, when I, when I studied like the Devadatta figure, so Devadatta was a, like kind of like a rebel, or in a lot of sutra was depicted like that. And especially that's why I have a soft spot for it because especially because I think was the only one that really want to put as a rule at least in among the monastic to be vegetarian and so and uh, and Gotama say no no do, do you think in that case coming back to the to the sutra Gotama was just using the, the right speech to don't go into an argument with him or or just like no it's not a rule at that state uh, I think it was, it's the latter. The, the Buddha, and again, it's a big misunderstanding. The Buddha never taught vegetarianism as part of Dhamma, as part of Buddhist practice, because he knew it was impractical. And there's there's suit that you probably come across suttas, Matteo, that the Buddha um, admonished monks that would come back into the sangha and, and and talk about how proud they are that they were offered meat and they wouldn't take it because the, the these people were poor and they out of their own kindness to to the the people seeking alms um, were being generous in that way. So they, they, they obviated their opportunity to be generous and be giving. Uh, so, and he was pointing, he was pointing to David Dada, the, 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 that his, his thinking wasn't correct in thinking that way. And that, that's a salvific way of, of looking at the world. Uh, so the, the Buddha taught to bring the, all of the Eightfold Path into everything that we do. And the, the truth of the matter is during the Buddha's time and our time, uh, there's whole populations of people that would simply perish if they weren't eating meat. These are mostly people in northern climates that have to, you know, they got to hunt for their food, etc. But there's still millions of human beings that, that are alive today. So, um, yeah, the, the Buddha was practicing right speech and saying that, uh, and especially to someone like a cousin. It, and you bring up a, another subtle point. Our, um, our speech will always be um, somewhat different with depending on how 
how much we know about another person and how intimate our relationship will be. It, it's just, you know, it's just part of human life. So, so the Buddha also had a personal relationship with Devadatta and he knew a lot about him. So he also knew in a practical way what his inclinations were for. So I hope that's, that's helpful, Matteo. Yeah, yeah. Just curious. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for joining today. Um, I think I got everybody there. Yes, yes. Laura, good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you so much for this teaching. Um, I think it's the first time I've heard it. Um, this is something that uh, I've struggled with and sort of just identified maybe in the last couple of years. Uh, the idea of um, someone close to me called it helping, not helping. When um, I, I feel I have this tendency to try to protect people around me from maybe harsh truths or yeah. perhaps lessons that might be actually helpful to them, you know, maybe by um, giving them, yeah, like a false uh, praise for something yeah. or, or just trying to protect them from the harshness of reality. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. So like I said, maybe the last couple of years. So it's nice to see it come up in the suttas. As, yeah. Uh, proof that it's not something that should be done. So, yeah, it, well, he, yeah. he taught it because it was common during the Buddhist time too. Yeah. Just it, it, just be mindful of our words and what we're saying to others. Right, right. And it it leaves you with a much more calm and peaceful mind too, doesn't it? Yeah. And so the recognition of that, Lauren, is the practice of wise restraint. You recognize it and you just don't say it because you know it's not part, Sometimes it, it can be uncomfortable. You know, if someone's like, oh, I jump on a pogo stick for 15 minutes, and then you don't say anything. Well, I, you know, as a human being, you say, yeah, that's good. You yeah. know? I mean, I, if, that, yeah. if someone said that to me, and they just said they were jumping on a pogo stick, I'd say, I wish I could, because I wish I could. But if they said my Dhamma practice is jumping on a pogo stick for 15 minutes, mm -hmm. what do you think? You know, there's my opportunity to, to teach a little bit Where they invite your yeah. opinion. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I run into, I mean, now it's common for people to talk about their mindfulness and et cetera and this and that. And, and I very rarely say, oh, I know all about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I just yeah. don't bring it up because it, it, they're saying it in a context where it's just, you know, mindfulness is everything in the world today. Good. You know. Um, one of my doctors asked me directly, he said, the guy that gives me the injections in the eye, he says, I've never had a patient that is so calm. I mean, it is a little strange to have somebody hanging over you, putting a needle in your eye. But, uh, and I just, well, I meditate a lot. And he laughed and he says, what do you do? And so there again, okay. And I told him what I did and he was interested. I gave him a book and see what happens, you know. But again, but I've been to you know, maybe a million other doctors in the last couple of years. And this is the first one that noticed and asked and opened the door. So... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, that way. A gentler way of inviting conversation rather than being sort of proselytizing and saying, I know all about that. Here's what you should yeah, do. And be, people are more comfortable to open up, right? Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't lead anymore with my identity. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, in that case, I'm just a, you know, an old guy getting needle in his eye. So, you know, it's, to me, it shouldn't be anything remarkable to him because I'm just one in a many either. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, have you noticed this within yourself that you notice something coming up in your own internal dialogue that you say, wait a minute, that's an aspect of internal wrong oh, speech. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure. it. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that then you're practicing the Dhamma all the time. Yeah. It, it's, it's just that way. So. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, Laura. Thank you, John. Uh, prior to this study, I, when I first heard uh, you all talking about wise restraint, the word restraint really stuck out to me in, in kind of a negative yep. connotation, thinking that, oh, I have to suppress or hold back tightly or... Yeah. Um, constrain myself in some way but now through this study I'm realizing that the wise restraint fosters the you know informed noble silence rather than suppression or and as you were saying before it's not that we should feel afraid to speak you know to say something but if it's not helpful or doesn't bring understanding or clarity then it's best to practice noble silence and it it seems that now I'm realizing that wise restraint and informed noble silence is also kind of simultaneously accompanied by that sympathy or empathy and um, understanding concentration and insight it's not just pure restraint, you know, don't say anything, or abandonment, it's it's kind of both at the same time, it seems. Yeah. So. It's a, it's a liberating practice in that way. And right. And one of the things that I noticed fairly early when I was actually practicing the Buddha's Dhamma is how much power is gained by incorporating the Eightfold Path as the framework for my life, meaning... And I think this is true of every human being. If I live to 200, I'll do a study on it. I think the, the, um, one of the defining characteristics is if the, the fear that I'm going to do something that might hurt another being, another human being. And that happens to all of us the first time, and it, usually when we're very young as children, that we do something out of frustration or anger, and we hurt our parents or a sibling or another loved one. And we, we, we can't understand that. Nobody can explain it to us when we're little children unless we have really remarkable parents. And I'm not putting anything on my parents or others. Yeah. Um, and it has an impact. That's called conditioning thinking. And we're, we're going to have those situations throughout our lives that we're going to inadvertently do something that hurts another human being. And that can't help but condition us because we don't understand it. Why did I do it? But as I started developing the Eightfold Path, I started realizing that I now have at least a measure of control and a framework in which to behave that I'm good to go, meaning I'm not going to hurt myself or another human being by my actions. That is the most liberating thing that any, any it's the most liberating thought that anybody can have, especially when you lock it in. Especially when you lock it in, when you know you're good to go. That is awakening. And that's why I call the Eightfold Path, it's a limiting path. What does it limit? It limits greed, aversion, rooted in deluded thinking. It limits the three defilements so that they no longer overcome and overtake my life. So now my life is based on calm, not on what I can get out of this moment. And then this moment is all I ever need. Because I don't need nothing. Right, Dhamma teacher Ron? Thank you, Laura. Thank you. It's a... a Timely um, sutta. Um, you know, I, we just did it before, but some months ago. Um, 
and uh, I think about that that aspect of right speech quite a bit, um, and, and especially how it how it plays out in in the sangha, um, because it's we're walking a pretty fine line, um, you know. Before uh, the uh, the teaching, we had a relatively pleasant conversation on on political matters. We were. Yes. Why? What's, yeah, what's right. wrong with us? Um, and I'm not always sure that that's that that's fully right speech. You know, because it can very easily kind of drift into divisive speech. Yeah. Um, and I, I um, that I wouldn't say troubles me, but I think about that a lot. Like, where 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 are the, the the limits, especially in the sangha? You know, where where are we crossing the line when when the Buddha says, you know, when we're gathered as a sangha, we should speak only of the Dharma. You know, so. Where do you apply that? Yeah. You know, and when you're talking about, and you're talking about, you know, daily, uh, you know, just just the daily news kind of thing. Um, you know, the you. You could talk about anything if it's framed by the Eightfold Path. You can well, talk that, about that, the most divisive it, thing, and it limits you, and you. And you actually feel the disengagement when you feel that this is outside the structure yeah. and limiting factor of the full path. We do that all the time. We, yeah. All the time as teachers when we gather, and it could be about anything, there is a limiting factor that is based on the full path, not that I feel uncomfortable have to pull back because I don't like the argument, mm -hmm. because I understand that. Yeah. that's what my life is at this point so mm -hmm. therefore I can get into any conversation and engage in it fully and not feel like I have to watch my mouth or be careful mm -hmm. that I'm going to hurt someone I'm speaking to so I find it a liberating thing and I also know that once you've eliminated idle chatter and gossip I'm very careful about my words. I'm very mindful about yeah. my words. So, all things are on the table. Yeah. And again, in the in the proper context. But were, were you finished, Rob? Uh, yeah, more or less. It, it's it, for me. It's an ongoing thing. Yeah, it is. The um, uh, just as I use myself often as an example of the absurdity of ignorance, how it manifested in my life. Worldly events are pertinent to the Dhamma in that context because they're just a good example. You know, what does is, what is ignorance of Four Noble Truths look like? That's a good example of it. Um, but, to, but then to say, use something as an example and then say, what uh, so-and-so, that's not right speech. Um, and as Dhamma practitioners, we can't deny, we don't deny that we live in the world. There is Dukkha. One of the most important suttas that the Buddha ever taught, and, and uh, I got to be killed. I'm not. Ram and I aren't in an argument right now either, and he knows what I'm about to say. 
one of the most famous suttas, the most important, is the Loka Sutta, where the Buddha just post his awakening. He said, I looked out on the world, and the world is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fires of eye-making. A flame with ignorance. He was using what was going on in his little world as an example. But he wasn't blaming anyone, but he was pointing out, look at the manifestations of ignorance in the world, and look at it. It's good for us to look at it and recognize it, not in a political party, but everywhere. And, and, and that's where we should see it. And we should see it because, so we can understand dukkha manifesting in the world. Again, if we want to end conflict in the world, we first end conflict in our minds. But there it is, playing out. The, the effects of not doing that are in front of us all the time. Um, and it is a fine line. Ram is right. You know, it, 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 and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, as, I'm as careful as I can be, I hope, I think I am, um, to be relevant to what's going on in the world as the Buddha was without, and I think it's probably clear what, what side of the middle I'm on. Uh, I don't, you know, I think anybody could figure that out. But that's not the point. Um, because there's, there's just as much, if somebody said, you, you, before you die, you got to declare. And I said, well, I might as well die now because I can't declare. And I can't, meaning a, a political party. I think that, uh, and I've always been like that. But I, everybody has their notions of how the world should be. My notions are based, I think, on uh, what is most liberating and what could be most liberating in the world because that's where the Dhamma takes me, towards liberation. Um, but we're also allowed to have our own opinions. In other words, your opinion, if I say um, President Trump was the greatest president we ever had and he should be president for life and you don't agree, that doesn't mean that as a Dhamma practitioner you have to agree. Or if I say Joe Biden or I think Putin is the, the greatest leader of the world... All of that. In fact, me saying Putin is the greatest leader in the world is as silly as a Dhamma teacher for me to say Biden is the greatest leader in the world because they're completely irrelevant to that. What is relevant is the Dhamma as example out in the world. So, uh, any other questions or comments? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll finish as we always do with Meta. This kind of relates what I was just talking about and what this suit is all about, too. Uh, so take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, 
so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. See you all. Thank you, Jan. See you, Kevin. See you, Matea. See you, Mary. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.